Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. This show, how would you describe this show, Jean? I think this show sits at the intersection of life and money. And basically what that means is that every week we're going to dig into what's happening in the news. We're going to talk about the big events, and we're going to do it through the lens of how that could impact building, growing, preserving, and protecting your wealth. And maybe spend less of it, if that was one of your (laughs) resolutions for 2022. Uh, Of course, we're going to be guided, as we are every single week, by the experts from Edelman Financial Engines, who work with their clients every single day to help them move their financial lives forward. And I guess we get to pick their brains and steal some of that advice for those of you uh, in our listening audience. So, you know, we're only midway through January, and in some ways it feels like we've lived six months of the new year. You know what I'd like to do? Jean, can we start with like a look back? Because sure. last year was kind of crazy from a financial news perspective. So just tick off for me. You know, I feel like it needs a drum roll. The year in review with Gene Chatsky. Well, the year in review, if you're looking at the markets, was an astonishing year. It was a stunning year, particularly because it was happening in the middle of the pandemic. You know, Delta hit us and the markets didn't even blink. The S&P 500 was up 27%. The Dow was up 19%. The NASDAQ was up 21.5%. I mean, it was, if you're an investor, and we hope that you are all investors, it was a really good year. Interest rates were low. The economy was expanding. But, you know, drum roll. We're now in 2022, and things are not only changing, they're changing really, really quickly. Yeah, it's been crazy. I mean, even just the conversation we had last week about inflation, and within that time, (laughs) last week to this week, numbers up again. Right. So we got an inflation report out the middle of last week that showed that inflation was up as measured by the Consumer Price Index, 7% year over year. And just to put that in perspective, the last time we saw a number like that was 1982. Four decades. I mean, 1982, I was graduating high school and starting college. I, I don't know if you remember your years. I'm very in, young. In very, dates. very young. <laughs> you, you know, is this, was this like a, a, an REO Speedwagon year? I think, in, I think in terms of music. But it was a really, really long time ago. And there, there's a lot at play in the economy right now. We're seeing jobs numbers that are not as good as we expected them to be. We know the Federal Reserve has said they're going to start increasing interest rates. They had projected three different interest rate hikes this year, but in fact, it looks like there may be more if you listen to some of the prognosticators out there. And they're going to start tapering, which means they're going to start taking some of the money they've been pumping into the economy out of it. And the markets are reacting to all of this. The markets have been incredibly volatile as we've kicked off this year. It's been interesting for me to see the categories where you see really the highest inflation, right? Automobiles. Well, if you tried to buy a car this year, right? I mean, think about what happened in the middle of the pandemic. People who were stuck in cities 
decided, oh my gosh, I need a car. I need a car to get me out of here on the weekends or just so I can see my friends. And at the same time that happened, we had all of these mishaps with the supply chain, with parts. There was a chip that car makers couldn't get. It sent used car prices up into the stratosphere. So yeah, you're right. But it's not just cars. We're seeing it really across the board. We're seeing if you are thinking that gallon of milk has been costing me more, you're not dreaming. Travel. I was surprised at travel, which of course took a massive hit in the pandemic and now seems to be roaring back. Because they have shrunk the capacity, right? If you're reading the headlines, you know that the airlines are facing big troubles right now with Omicron. They're facing staff shortages that are forcing them, along with the weather, to cancel huge numbers of flights. But what also happened was the airlines took a look at what was going on and said, all right, we're going to put fewer flights out there and we are going to put smaller planes on the runways. And and all of that, I think, contributed to people who are traveling, paying more to travel. There's been the rise of the retail investor, which really we saw a huge rise, I think, a spike during the pandemic. And And I'm curious, is it as simple as just bored people, some of whom were getting continued to get paid, but were working from home and had, you know, were sitting online all day, who now had an opportunity to try something new. Is that is that too simplistic? I think there's a little more to it. It wasn't that they just continued to get paid. It's that they got stimulus checks, right? And and a lot of people took a look at these stimulus checks and thought they were going to make more of them. But that boredom played a factor. So when we talk about the rise of the retail investor, we talk about meme stocks. We've seen an explosion. I mean, more than 10 million new brokerage accounts were opened in 2020, many of them by young people who went on Reddit and started following these exciting threads about GameStop and AMC and thought, hey, this is a way for me, an individual investor, one of the 99% to tap into this world where people are making a lot of money really fast. And many of them, I think, felt a little bit of a power play. You know, they, they felt like, hey, I can really stick it to Wall Street me and all of these other people like me, we have this opportunity to move these stocks and to force hedge funds, which had decided that GameStop and AMC were bad bets and sold them short, which means they were betting the price would go down. We're going to drive the price up and we're going to force them to lose a lot of money. And in fact, that's what happened. So are you expecting, I mean, we're still in the pandemic. In a lot of ways, it feels like we're moving forward. But do you expect that DIY, do-it-yourself investor number to grow again? Do you think it's leveling off? I don't see. I mean, considering the correlation to social media and influencers and sort of following the people who are giving out advice very freely, sometimes very wrongly, but very freely, uh, do you expect that number just to grow? I expect it will continue to grow, but I think that these individual investors, these retail investors have had their eyes opened a little bit. These prices went up. They also came down. There was a lot of volatility. People didn't only make money. They lost money. And what we saw, and I think this is really heartening, is that people who started trading perhaps in these meme stocks, 
built diversified portfolios. It was a little bit like, I don't know if you remember the Beardstown ladies phenomenon from many, many years ago when people joined investment clubs, right? right? They joined investment clubs, they got their feet wet, and then they as individuals built broader portfolios that served them really well. And that's the hope. So the, the the single investment that you care about is what brings you in. And then you tend to do what advice seems to consistently be, which is to be diversified. And to learn that if you are, a lot of this trading on these apps happened in options. Options are complicated and they're tools that professional investors use that individual investors don't quite have the same access to at the same level. And I think people learned the lesson that, hey, for most people, when it comes to your investments, a broad, diversified portfolio is just the better way to go. But isn't it hard to push back against yeah, but short-term gain, super fast. You can make money. You can make a, a decent amount of money. I, I, I don't know. You I think whenever you lose <laughs> yeah, a decent well. amount of money. And, and it was very interesting to read the stories about people who made, made, made money and then lost, lost, lost money and realized, hey, maybe this was fun short-term. Maybe these apps are a little gamey and are sticky and make me want to come back day after day. But that might not be the best thing for my long-term financial health. And I think as people are going into 2022 with the stimulus checks not coming, we're having to reset. We're having to say, okay, what do I do now in order to put me on course, not just for this year, but for the future? Hopefully, those are the sorts of thoughts that they continue to have. I'm so interested to hear what financial experts think about their clients who come to them and say, hey, listen, actually, I'm doing this at home now. (laughs) And we're going to have that opportunity, of course. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more. Stay with us. More with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. And we are back. I'm Gene Chatsky with Soledad O'Brien. And joining us is John McCafferty. He is an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner from Alexandria, Virginia. Welcome, John. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so Hi, John. much. So Hi. tell me a little bit about how you got into being a wealth planner. So... Out of college, I graduated in the late 90s. And then after some forethought, I took a look at categories of life that you really, you can't get these things wrong. And personal finance is absolutely one of those things. And I'm a person that likes to help people. For me, it was a good combination. So right around 2005, I entered the industry, got my licenses, worked my way up, and here I am now working with Edelman Financial Engines. Do you expect the number of do-it-yourself investors to grow if you consider, I don't see anything that would give me an indication that it's going to be fewer people? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on if they're making money or losing money. That's probably going to influence if the numbers grow or if they don't. With a lot of these things, There's so many unknowns. I I would argue it's almost impossible to say, will this trend increase or decrease? And what we saw with a lot of these DIY investors, a lot of people on the apps, 
was speculation, right? right? They were trying to make a quick buck. Did you have clients who came into your office and said, hey, I want in. I'm reading Reddit. I want some GameStop. I want some AMC. I want some crypto. Like, you, are you, you are know you the truth? See, yeah. No. Why not? I believe, and I think my colleagues would agree with me, it's because we have a particular way of doing things. And let me preface this, by the way. I want to dispel perception versus reality. Just because I'm a financial planner, I'm not against the individual investor. I want everyone to succeed financially. But my primary focus is to educate my clients or my prospective clients so that ultimately they make more informed and ideally more successful financial choices. And by and large, history, statistics, results, outcomes, it's so in favor of an extensively diversified portfolio that if I do bring up this topic, it's not to talk people out of things. It's really to educate them and point them in the right direction, ideally. One of the things that I worried about as we watched these investors was this was their only bet. Right. They were not diversified. They weren't building a portfolio. And this is not something that we just see with these investors. This is something we've seen through the years. We've seen it in particular with a lot of people owning stock in the companies that they've worked for. Can right. you talk about when you are buying individual stocks, what does it take to be diversified? Well, it takes more than one stock to be diversified. And if it's a company that one works for, there's going to be some degree of loyalty. Maybe it's it, it looks good to their employers to own some of the stock. And the reality is this. You hear the expression, own what you know. And that's natural. But what I want to inform and educate my clients about is it doesn't matter the stock. It doesn't matter the company. There's going to be periods where that's going to work for you. And there's going to be periods where it might not work for you. It might work against you. So I don't know if that directly answered the question. More directly, I do talk to people about individual stocks within their retirement plans. By and large, we encourage them to limit that exposure to roughly 5% of their liquid net worth. So why? Why limit it to 5% of the portfolio? Because investing has as much to do with risk as it does return. And the investment mandate of a fiduciary, which is what we are here at Edelman Financial Engines, we serve as fiduciaries. It's not very glamorous, but it is very appropriate. And it's this, to avoid large losses. It doesn't say to avoid losses, but it says to avoid large losses. And so when you're looking at the, the composition of a portfolio, if you have any position, whether it's a mutual fund, an ETF, or in this case, an individual stock, if it becomes an outsized percentage or proportion of the portfolio, it's now increasing the risk. And it might not be necessary. So what do you do if a, a client comes in? Maybe they're a new client comes right. in and you look at their portfolio and you're like, yikes, above 5%. How do you well, manage that? We'll, we'll point that out. First and foremost, we are here to serve the client. We're here to do what's in their best interests. So if it's a specifically if it's a large stock position in a retirement account, we don't have to really deal with tax implications. It's more about portfolio construction. If we encounter clients or prospective clients who have a large concentrated position in a non-retirement account, it's a different conversation because it, is it in their best interests to sell that stock if I'm going to hand someone a massive tax bill? I would argue no. And so what we do is approach such a situation from the perspective of the client and what's in their best interests, educate them on why we would make certain recommendations, possibly reduce the size of that stock position, then accordingly structure their financial plan around that stock position, and then educate them along the way of what are some more constructive ways to 
either reduce the position. One example would be gifting shares. That's a great way to sort of scale out of a highly concentrated stock position. Or do they want to hold on to it? And the client has input on this. We're not dictating terms to our clients or prospective clients. But it seems like, and Gene, you were saying this in our last block, that sometimes individual stocks are a good entryway Correct. into becoming an investor. It's right. sort of the way to dip your toe in because you might feel like, I love Lululemon, and boy, I've seen all my friends wearing Lululemon, so this might be an amazing thing to invest. Anyone who's taking stock tips from me, I should (laughs) qualify. You have truly lost your mind. Don't do it. But I'm using that as my fake example. And so... I guess I'm I'm curious. The upside seems to be, you know, you overcome a barrier to entry. Like now you're right. an investor in a way that maybe you never thought you were. Downsides seem to be pretty big. I couldn't agree with you more, Soledad, about this enthusiasm for investing. And if it takes someone buying individual stocks or getting on an app that in the long run may or may not be good for them, if that gets them interested in investing, then I'm all for it. It's the fall of cost and the rise of technology that have opened the doors for the retail investors to pour into this market by the millions. I think the question is, what's your best advice for somebody who does want to play in this market? The best advice? Yeah. I would talk to a professional. And by the way, I've been in that person's shoes. I've made the phone calls. I've talked to 20 different people and I just couldn't find a right match. That would be the best piece of advice. And it doesn't mean you have to be a client. Talk to that professional. Well, I'm curious because it seems to me that one of the downsides is really discovering that you're not as educated as you need to be. So are there ways to really become a more educated investor? Yeah. I mean, it starts with education. Wall Street Journal. Right, right. And, you know, Benjamin Graham. And if you find out about Graham, eventually that's going to lead to Warren Buffett. I think those are pretty high expectations for someone starting out. If you're comparing yourself to Warren Buffett, <laughs> that, 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 that's the issue. Yes that's and, an issue. Yes and no. Right. If we read these days, the intelligent investor column in The Wall Street Journal is written by Jason Zweig. He wrote last week that the most important investment for 2022 is discipline, mm. is discipline. And what does that mean? What does he mean by that? What he means is that you have a plan, you know what you're trying to accomplish, you have a, a mix of investments, an asset allocation that you are going to stick with and a diversification that you are going to follow, and then you actually follow right. it. You don't allow yourself to be derailed by the fact that the markets are down 500 points in a day or that we got a couple of bad economic reports. You you stick with your guns because you know historically historically, the markets will come back. I read the same article, and it was from this past weekend's Wall Street Journal, Jason Zweig. The title of the article is, This Year Could Get Crazy. (laughs) Invest in your self-control. And we're talking about the rise of technology and how it has made things easier. And he references a, a book that was recently written by Wendy Wood. She's a professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California. And her comments I found very interesting and very relevant to what we're talking about now. She says, your behavior is much more controlled by what's easy in your environment than most of us think. She also said that what you need is friction. You need to put something in the way that prevents you from making a bad decision. So essentially what she's saying is that if you are turning on 
financial news television, and it is inspiring you to go to the computer and start typing to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing, you should be watching Kelly and Ryan instead, right? right? You should just, you should be watching something else. Sometimes it's hard to put your fingers on the information that you need about these complicated topics, but I know you guys are there to help. Exactly, and we want to make it easy for you. That's why Tuesday, January 25th, we're offering you a webinar. It's free. It's titled 10 Ways to Help Protect Your Wealth from Inflation. Once again, it's Tuesday, January 25th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're interested, just visit planefe.com to register. Thanks so much for that, John. We'll be right back. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to dive into a conversation about caregiving. I know you're dealing with it, Soledad. I'm dealing with it, too. I love them dearly. But yes, (laughs) we should discuss it. (laughs) More with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky when we come back. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. And we're back. I'm Soledad O'Brien along with Gene Chatsky. Also today, John McCafferty's joining us with Edelman Financial Engines. He's a wealth planner out of Alexandria, Virginia. Nice to have you joining us today. Thank you. A couple weeks ago, we talked about personal economies, which was a phrase I had actually never heard before, you know, that no matter what's happening in the world, it's really what's happening in your personal economy is a thing that's going to be uh, front of mind that's going to affect you the most. And I think one area that can suck money out of your personal economy is helping financially people you love who you might not have thought you'd be taking care of them down the road. I mean, I'm thinking about my elderly parents who now passed away a couple of years ago, but just how financially helping them navigate their end of life was insane. It was crazy. And it's not just the end of life. I mean, we're talking about this world of family caregiving. And when we look at the people who are family caregivers, essentially unpaid caregivers, but if your parents need help, you give them help. And and research from AARP has shown people who are taking care of their parents are spending about $7,200 out of pocket every single year. There's a rule of thumb that I have found really, really helpful through the years because people don't know when they are supposed to have this conversation. Right. So I point them to the 40-70 rule. If you are 40 or your parents are 70 and you haven't talked about Mm -hmm. this yet, it's just time. And that just gives people something to to hold on to. What does talk about this yet mean? Like specific what and how? That's a great point. It's like when? Well, how old are you? Gene brings up a great point. It's like, well, we're all getting older here, so uh, let's bring it up. And this is how we help is we create an environment. I recommend my clients, allow me to be the catalyst. Allow me to structure this. Allow me to schedule this meeting so that you just simply have the conversation. And I think what's most important about this conversation, yes, there are specifics, some potential tax implications, but setting expectations is critical. Not only what might your parents expect, but what can you personally expect in terms of how might this impact your career? How might this impact your future earnings potential? How might this impact your ability to save a retirement? How might this impact your ability to send the kids to the school that you want them to go? This is the what do you want conversation. Right. This is this is what do you want and where is the money going to come from and who's the one that's going to handle right. it? And I got to tell you, I have 
three stepbrothers and two brothers. I'm the one, you know, no. That's that's a lot of what we see. For better or for worse, it's usually the daughter. And that's okay because as long as you know that you're the one and you are going to assume the power of being the one, right? right? I had this conversation with my mother in the kitchen just this week. We lost my stepdad a couple of months ago. She is responsible for unwinding a lot of things and she is not the mother of his children. Right. So she feels like she has to consult them about every decision that she makes. And I basically said, I will not have this problem right. when you die right. because I'm not asking my brothers. Like, I'm just going to do it because I know I'm the one. I'm going to tell them I'm the one. If they have any problem with that, they can take it up with me now. Right. But we set the stage. Right. I can't say it enough. Setting proper expectations because so often... We assume that family not only will be there, but here's the other risk. We assume that they know what to do. Mm. Most don't. And this applies, I don't want to get off topic here, but this applies to estate planning as well. Oh, well, I'll just give my son or daughter power of attorney. Oh, well, they'll be the, the trustee of my trust, or they'll be the executor of my estate. Here's what I regularly see, whether it's caring for a parent or involving estate planning. The family member you're delegating to has no experience doing this. None. My parents, when we first had this conversation, when they were in their late 70s, they basically said, we got it covered. They had come to this country as immigrants and built a life. They put us all through college. We took out loans, of course. They uh, were able to retire well and had some money saved. So, like, they did it all just fine. And when they told us, I have five brothers and sisters, they told the six of us, like, we got it. We're like, they got it. Mm -hmm. Guess what? (laughs) They didn't got it. So didn't got it. Um, (laughs) They clearly did not have it. And, Mm -hmm. of course, I think we paid the price for that as they got older and they got sicker. How do you, in your work, insert yourself into that conversation? Right. So it is my responsibility to keep an eye towards the future. And generally what I will do is when I help my clients through, say, something like a retirement projection, we need to include the projected costs of a private room in a nursing home Mm -hmm. or maybe at home health. And so I might use that as sort of a segue into, you know, we talked about your parents uh, during our last annual review. How are they doing? And, uh, you know, you don't just drop it in their lap, but you find creative and constructive ways to make sure that you're having the conversation. So that is one way to do that, where you personalize it and you apply it to their circumstances, and then you branch out into, okay, well, what's going on to the people around you? I'll take it one step further. I'll tell people who get to that 4070 point whose parents won't have the conversation to bring the planner into the room, Mm -hmm. right? I will say, because you are still the child in their eyes, sometimes you need to bring the expert, the planner, into the room to just facilitate the conversation and to be the therapist. Completely agree. A third party, an independent voice, it makes a difference because maybe there's circumstances where maybe it was your parents or your kids and you keep delivering the same message, but it's not sinking in. That's when a third party should be involved because simply just hearing sometimes literally the same message from a different person who's a professional, then it sinks in. So what does life look like if someone needs an aid or someone needs help? How do we pay that person? Mm -hmm. Do we have the money for that? And where do you live? And where do they live if they're living? And like all these specific questions. All right. So if you do pay someone, 
there can be potential tax implications. It's generally referenced as the nanny tax. We just finished 2021. The threshold for the nanny tax is $2,300. All right. So meaning if you pay them, you may be subject to this nanny tax. In the eyes of the IRS, you'd be viewed as an employer. And for 2022, it's $2,400. But once you cross that threshold, you're responsible for the employer and employee Social Security tax, as well as Medicare tax. It's a total of 7.65%. The number for 2022, the threshold is $2,400. That's annually. And the number for 2021 is $2,300. The question that I get asked a lot is, if I'm one of those 48 million Americans who are taking care of a family member without pay, is there a way for me to get paid? And there actually are three different ways. There are a couple of benefits programs. If you are caring for somebody who is eligible for Medicaid, there is a way through Medicaid to get paid. It's pretty difficult. I don't want to give anybody the idea that it's easy because it's not. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. Also, if you're caring for a veteran, there are military benefits that you're going to want to look into. But if you're caring for somebody who has substantial financial resources, they can pay you. And that's the easiest way to actually make this happen. Just a couple of other resources. If you're caring for somebody and you're not sure that they're getting all of the government assistance that they're eligible for, there is a website called Benefits Checkup. It's benefitscheckup.org. You should 100% go there. And if you're having trouble finding that family caregiver, Elder Care Locator, which is at eldercare.acl.gov, is a really valuable resource. I wish you guys had had this conversation with me a while back. That would have been really, really helpful. This is really good advice. And I think you're right. I mean, it does sound almost cliche, but it has to start with a conversation. And I would add, don't let people skate out of the conversation, like whiteboard it. What Mm -hmm. does living look like? Who's handling the fine? Like very specific Mm -hmm. answers. When do mom and dad stop driving? If they're no longer driving, who is taking them to the grocery store? What happens when caregivers get exhausted? I mean, Run through the 200 questions that you have to answer because otherwise you will end up, as we did, kind of in the rearview mirror trying to fix things after they really should have been dealt with before. Exactly. So if you have questions about this topic or anything else, please give us a call at Edelman Financial Engines, 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. And we're back. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien and John McCafferty from Edelman Financial Engines. Nice to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. We are going to talk about something that's a little more fun, actually. Through January, we've been focused on resolutions, which you are the queen of, my dear (laughs) Soledad, but also on getting our financial houses in order. Today, we're going to talk about bonuses because bonuses have actually been up, right? I mean, 23% of companies said they are offering a bonus based on company performance this year. That's up from 12% last year. That basically doubled. So interesting what people are doing with their bonuses. There's a a survey um, from Blind, which is a networking site for professionals. It's a 2021 survey. 67% said they were investing the money, which ties into what we were talking about with the rise of the retail investor. 21% said they were saving their bonus in cash, so building that emergency fund, which is a good thing if you don't have it. 
8% said they were using it to a big purchase, and 4% said they were donating it. I was a little heartened by that. That's above the level for giving in the United States. That was a nice result. So when someone comes to you with like, ooh, I got this big giant bonus check, have you ever said to them, don't invest it or don't invest all of it? Take some of that money and go and do something fun? Absolutely. Part of the conversation was invest it, but the other part of the conversation was go out and spend it. I mean, what's the point of having money if you really can't enjoy it? In my house, we say this is why we work. Right. right. We say when we're looking for an excuse to do something fun with our money, it's letting yourself off the hook, especially retirees. That's so important because sometimes they're so worried about running out of money mm-hmm. that they hold on to it a little too tightly. How many of your clients come to you and say, I need to make sure I'm doing something smart with it. The conversation generally goes, hey, look, here's an XYZ dollar amount. What should we do with this? Well, number one, I want to take a step back and see how it fits into their overall plan. I want to walk people through sort of the sort of a checklist of, okay, all right, where do we stand on cash reserves? As a firm, we recommend people carry three to 24 months of net expenses in cash. Sometimes you don't need that much, okay? So maybe six to 12 months is sufficient. And if you already have it, okay, then what do we do? All right, well, any outstanding debts? We just finished up the holidays, all right? Maybe there was some debt incurred due to travel or gifts or what have you. Can we just get rid of that? Maybe yes, maybe no, all right? Or do we invest it? And if we do, and you know, before any of this, we want to explore tax implications. What I typically do, usually by the time the client calls me, the bonus has already been, they've already received it. But if we have a conversation in advance of them receiving it, I like to reach out to the plan provider and walk them through the implications. Because sometimes there's certain schedules tied to receiving these benefits. And I want my client to be as informed as possible so that if and when this money actually becomes available, What are the tax implications? Is it tied to them staying with that employer a little bit longer, which I think is particularly relevant in this environment? Is it worth it? What if you do have a bonus and it's tied to you sticking around for another 10 months and another offer comes along? What are you going to do? You can ask them to match that bonus. That's happening in this environment as well, right? right? Making good on unpaid bonuses is something that I've been hearing a lot of. But I'm wondering when... They come to you with this sum of money. Do you invest it all right away? Do you dollar cost average it into the market? There are a couple of schools of thoughts on that. Right. Assuming that that's the right choice, investing the money. By and large, lump sum investing. That's the way to go. Why? It's about time in the market and not delaying investing your money. Okay? So specifically, we'll go through what are called time value of money calculations for people. They're, They're pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. And when you type it into your calculator, you can have the payment or meaning your investment go in at the beginning of the year or the end of the year. Every time if you put it in at the beginning of the year, simply because you're investing your money sooner and all else being equal, you're going to have more money. And so if you maintain a long-term perspective, which is a constant to our approach and our philosophy, if you maintain a long-term perspective, lump sum investing is the better way to go. I'm your client, and I, at this point, I'm looking at the markets, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, things have been going up for a very long time. Got to come getting, down soon. They're getting volatile. There are a lot of people who are projecting that mm-hmm. returns are not going to be what they were. Right. 
I don't want to put my money in today and have it drop 20% tomorrow. Well, now we're going back to sort of the topic around the rise of the retail investor and that attitude or a headline that says, well, you know, I think for the next decade, we're going to see lower returns in stocks. I really don't care for those headlines because number one, they're by and large inaccurate. Number two, they can squash someone's enthusiasm to invest the money. As a fiduciary, I'm going to I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that investing that money, whether it's in a lump sum or dollar cost averaging, is the actually the right thing to do for that client. But for someone who is uncertain, it never goes away. And this is why I'm not recommending you take your bonus and put it into GameStop. I'm recommending you take your bonus and put it in an extensively diversified portfolio where you're going to own eight to nine thousand different companies. What also helps is perspective. Too often people focus on the stock, the company. Think of it in terms of outcomes. If you're investing in your future and you're limiting it to three or four outcomes, that's not much of a life. Now, if you're investing your money in eight to 9,000 different outcomes, you've got infinitely more opportunity to succeed. And that's part of why we do it. And sometimes it takes seeing this situation over and over and over again to get people to view things in a different way light or through a different prism. I wouldn't focus so much on the individual stock. Think of it as an outcome. And the more outcomes you make available to yourself, the higher likelihood you will succeed. And tying it back to what we're talking about now, it makes it dramatically easier to invest your money in a lump sum rather than dollar cost average. Many people struggle when it comes to those shorter term goals. So let's say this money is not for my retirement, but I want to buy a house in the next three to five years and this is going toward my down payment Mm -hmm. or I want to use it to help put my kids through college Mm -hmm. with interest rates low. Where do I put that money? It depends. It depends on the goal. It depends on the time horizon. We believe a long term perspective is three years or longer. Cash is not really intended to be an investment. I mean, historically, since 1926, cash has yielded about 3%. We haven't seen that in, I remember in 2007, money markets were about 4.5%. We haven't seen that in a long time, and I'm not going to make any guesses as to when we're going to see it again. So if your goal is, say, within three years, you don't have to leave it in cash, but it's a worthwhile consideration. Because the other question or a question I think it's important to ask is, is it worth it? What if my goal is defined? It's in the form of a new car. It's in the form of a tuition bill. And what if I take on the risk? Remember, risk is equally important as return when it comes to investing. And what if by the time I need that money, I've lost 15 or 10% or in the case of GameStop, it's down 47% in the last six weeks. So it does depend on the goal, the time horizon. And my job is to be consistent with my messaging and coach them to making the best decision for themselves. How do you get them to remove the emotion? I mean, often people give the advice, remove the emotion, which is harder to do than it is to say. I was going to say impossible (laughs) to do. Here's what I say, and it doesn't always work. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, delegate this, delegate that. Delegate your worries to me. Let me (laughs) worry about it. And I have to tell you this. If we're talking about investing, stress is part of it. Emotion is part of it. And I see it. I see it in meetings. I hear it in conversations. When I talk to people about investing in a broadly diversified pool of, in, of investments in stocks, bonds, variety of asset classes, and then I let them know, look, the outcome you will receive, you don't have as much influence on this outcome as you feel or as you think you do. And that's difficult for people to accept. But if you hear it, you accept it, you acknowledge it, and eventually, if you embrace it, you can see it leave people's bodies. 
You can hear it in their voice. And the best moment is when someone has this moment of self-realization. They understand, you know what, you're right. Hope is not an investment strategy. Right. I appreciate that John has given all of us, the two of us, Gene and I, and also anybody listening, you now can be his emotional <laughs> sounding board. Right. I, right I, on heard, me. I heard you say that for right. anything, not just financial, any right. issue that's bothering you, right. you can reach out to John and just but it's, it's I'll call you in the middle of the night. John, you up? I'm just <laughs> worried about something. Thank you so much for joining us today. John McCafferty out of the Alexandria office for Edelman Financial Engine. So nice to get your insight and to have these conversations uh, with you, Gene, and I really appreciate it. That is our show for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. Obviously, we would love to hear from you. So if you have a question or you have a topic that you'd like us to address on the show, go to everydaywealth.com. Reach out to us. Submit your question. We really want to hear from you. If you missed last week's show, the podcast is available there as well. Big thank you to all of you who are listening. John as well. Gene, we'll see everybody back here next week. We absolutely will. Have a great weekend, everybody. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, and find our show wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The Cairo Radio Text Line is Wealth brought to is you by more. State Roofing. At TL Mortgage, New Year's means helping new friends find new ways to save money. Still haven't refinanced? Call us at Keel, 1-888-778-KIEL. Mortgage Master Service Corporation, CL40445, Equal Housing Opportunity. Are you a tenant facing eviction or a property owner dealing with non-payment of rent? The Eviction Resolution Pilot Program requires tenants and landlords to meet with a resolution specialist and explore solutions like rental assistance or develop a payment plan before an eviction lawsuit is filed. And the program is free for tenants and landlords. To learn how to participate, visit courts.wa.gov slash eviction resolution. Sponsored by the Washington State Administrative Office of the Courts and Air in cooperation with the Washington State Association of Broadcasters and this station. Make memories at Miner's Landing on Seattle's historic waterfront on Pier 57. Indulge in fresh-from-the-sea delicacies at the Fisherman's Restaurant. Book now at Fisherman'sRestaurantSeattle.com. I'm Rick Edelman, inviting you to listen to my new podcast, The Truth About Your Future. Every week, I'll give you the information you need about the five personal finance topics that matter most. Longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, blockchain and digital assets, and health and wellness. Technology is changing everything. And that means you have to rethink everything you thought you knew about college and career, homeownership and mortgages, retirement and leisure, and of course, how you invest your money. In my new podcast, I show you the investments that my wife and I personally own, so you can build your own portfolio or talk with your financial advisor to secure your own financial future. Listen to my new podcast, The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman, available at iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google, and my website, thetruthayf.com. That's thetruthayf.com. For breaking news.